Uh, I want to start by telling you a, a story, something that happened to me when I was a college student. I was invited uh, my senior year to be the student that made a presentation at the Board of Trustees meeting. And uh, I was honored to get this uh, ask. At the time, it seemed like a big deal. And so I said yes, even though I had a conflict uh, that I couldn't get out of, but I figured I could, I could perhaps make this work. Uh, as it turned out, I really couldn't make it work very seamlessly, and so I had to go to the guy uh, who, a university vice president who had invited me and explained that I, I was all set. I just, I just needed to move the time of my presentation, right? So the trustees just needed to adjust their schedule to fit my schedule. That didn't go over very well, and he and I got in, it was a little tense, which would have been okay, except it got considerably worse. Um, I showed up that day very early because I felt like I was already in a little bit of hot water, so I wanted to be there nice and early, and because I was going to have to leave early also. And I went in, and there was a big, it's a conference room, and there's a big long table, and, and I had been in this conference room before several times, and the head of the table had always been here. So I went and sat at the foot of the table, right? And uh, I was the only one there, and I sat there, and after about five minutes, this uh, vice president walked in, and we made small talk for a little bit, and then he said, you know, Mike, uh, I think it would be appropriate if you moved to the other end of the table. Now, what I didn't understand was, I was actually at the head of the table. I thought I was at the foot of the table. I was actually at the head of the table. And he says, it would be appropriate for you to move to the other end of the table. And I said, well, you know, I, I actually, I got here early because I did not want there to be any chance that I would be at the other end of the table. <laughs> and he said, well, but it would be better if you were at the other end. And I said, you know, I cannot imagine going to the other end of the table. And so I just held on to this, and I, I insisted, again, thinking he's trying to move me to the head of the table. i got to leave early. I don't, I don't want to be disruptive. I want to be able to sneak out. I'm giving the student report. This is not significant. I just want to, you know, I want to be as unobtrusive as I can. And, and it got a little testy again, and I just said, you know, I, I'm not going to the other end of the table. I can't. Imagine going to the other end of the table. Well, some other people start to file in, and so he looks at me and says, whatever. And uh, I don't notice. The room fills up, and, and it's uh, just a couple minutes after the meeting is uh, supposed to start. In come the president and the, president and the chairman of the board of trustees and uh, someone else, uh, the provost and, and the chairman of the alumni association or whatever. The, these Four individuals come in, and I suddenly realize that there are three empty seats next to me and no other empty seats anywhere, and there's four of these people that need to sit down. And I realize at that moment, oh my goodness, I'm at the head of the table. And I try to get up, and the provost goes, no, Mike, no, you just stay there. I'll go stand in the corner. And, and, and then I start to rehearse what I've said. I got here early, so I would be at this end of the table. I can't imagine going to the other end of the table. I was just like, oh, I wanted to throw up. So um, I made my report, uh, and I escaped uh, as unobtrusively as you can when you're sitting at the very head of the table. Uh, and 
um, I went on Monday, uh, the next, the, that Monday, uh, it was a weekend board meeting, um, and I went to the vice president, and I apologized, and he was not buying it at all. He said, you knew exactly what you were doing. And I said, I promise you I didn't. He goes, no, I don't buy it. So I came off like a very, very arrogant jerk. Uh, when you don't understand what's going on, that's a risk, right? And I want to suggest when you don't understand what's going on, the risks can be even greater than being a very arrogant jerk. And uh, I think that's true when it comes to this issue of sin. So we've been in a series for a month, and the, the, the starting premise is that um, those of us who are Christ followers, right? So those of us who have said, I'm in, I believe that Jesus is not just a good guy, that I can't imagine that, that we could get the greatest ethical teaching we're going to get from anyone in the history of the world from an uneducated uh, fisherman. I think that the fact that he performed miracles is because he was God. I think the way that he fulfilled prophecy is because this was a plan. Uh, I think that the fact that he launched the church which is now the biggest, most significant, most ethnically and geographically dispersed organization in the history of the world is not an accident, right? That, that's because Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm in, and his offer to give me eternal life, I'm not going to get an offer like that. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. Those of us who say we're in uh, are expected to get better, right? Over time, we're supposed to grow, Salvation is supposed to be followed by what we call sanctification. We're supposed to become more like Jesus. He's not primarily an example. He's primarily God and the Savior of the world, but he is an example. And we are supposed to become more like him, more loving, more thoughtful, more kind, more other-centered, more patient, more self-control. Those are the things that are supposed to be true in our life. But, second point is, Lots of people don't seem to move in that direction very quickly or very far. Lots of people get stuck. Lots of people stall. And uh, the, the third point is, I have said that although we talk about the reasons for this, saying things like, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lack of focus, there's laziness, there's a lack of education, there's injustice, there's addictions, there's all these things holding us back. Biblically speaking, all these things get, get, uh, get uh, umbrellaed under the term sin, which is, a, which is a very nuanced, complicated, diverse idea, not the clunky sort of set of breaking rules that we tend to think of it as. So we have been exploring sin, and uh, this has been, uh, I, I th- I, I've gotten plenty of feedback that this has been a helpful series, but at the same time, having a series on sin is not, it's just not something we talk about today. Sin is a word that people don't want to use today. The idea that there's right and wrong, good and bad, evil, we're not supposed to be judgmental in that sense. Uh, So we'll admit that mistakes were made because that's easy to say. You never say who made the mistakes. And we'll admit that there's dysfunction and there's injustice. We'll admit that there are problems out there. But we don't want to say uh, that these problems are the result of sin or that someone might actually be bad. I was reading a report by a uh, psychiatrist who's working in the British penal system, and he said he, had, he was talking about two of his patients, clients, 
One of them was uh, the shoe bomber. Uh, so this guy who tried to blow up a plane with 190 people on it, he had 100 arrests before that for assault, for robbery, for generally being trouble. The other one was a 14-year-old who had been arrested by the police 250 times already for all kinds of issues. And he said, um, what I am not allowed to say when I'm dealing with these people is that they would in any sense be bad. The, the term he used was bad lads. They're not bad lads. Uh, he said, I can't say that we talk about uh, a lack of resources, a lack of training, a lack of social support, and other things. Uh, because we just don't want to go there. Uh, earlier this week, or last week, I was, I was in a doctor's office. And I started a conversation with a guy. And we ended up talking about, he was, he was very concerned and depressed about the future. And uh, at some point, I let on that I'd written a book about the future a couple years ago, and so the conversation became quite animated, and he had very specific opinions about what was going wrong and why. And I agreed with him on a number of points, but when I suggested that, uh, he asked about the book, and I said, well, I I sort of tracked four big trends, and I said, one of them is globalization, one of them is accelerating technology, one of them is, I said, one of them is changing social dynamics, changing social-sexual dynamics. And I knew it was a risk to go there and to say that because as soon as you hint that there's any kind of parameters on moral behavior, lots of people will say, well, that's, I'm, I'm out. I can't, I can't follow you down that path. And uh, indeed, that's what he said. Well, I'm, I, that, that's, that's crazy, right? You can't go there. So we don't like conversations about sin. Um, and when I suggested... There's a team that sort of looks at worship services and sermons. And when I suggested I wanted to do uh, a series on sin, uh, it was not warmly embraced. Like, oh, good grief. The only thing worse than a five-year study on the book of Luke is going to be a study on sin. And I agreed. I said, you know, I think it's just got to be short, but I think that there are some things that we can can learn from that. So I, I regret making it short. It's over. I regret making it short, in part because in my studies, I, I came to understand something I didn't know before the last few weeks, and that is that there is a there has been a turn in in sort of secular discussions. So most secular people, most liberal people, most people today in the West do not want to talk about sin. But there's a growing number of sort of uh, leading uh, self-identified secular liberal people who are saying, uh, you know, we don't have right now the language to talk about what's going on. Uh, Arthur Del Banco, a uh, self-described secular liberal and author, wrote, and, and uh, in the New York Times ran across this quote, he said, a gulf is opened in our culture between the reality of evil and our intellectual resources to cope. And he just explored this idea that, um, you know, if we're going to say, as we're sort of limited to say, if we look at this biologically, well, we, we've got this survival of the fittest uh, outfit, a mindset that leads us to do things that are not always um, pleasant. Uh, or if we talk about sociology, well, there's economic deprivation that leads people uh, to, to, to have bad circumstances and they respond against that. Or if we look at this psychologically, we say, well, there's some repressed anger and repressed issues out there. He said, none of those ideas are big enough to talk about the fact that we got real problems out there. 
And uh, there's a lot of evil. There's a lot of, of, of uh, wickedness that is going on. So I was reminded um, of this quote by Dostoevsky in The Brothers Karamazov. And he says, people talk sometimes of a bestial cruelty. That's an injustice to the beasts. A beast can never be so cruel as a man, so artistically cruel. The tiger only tears and gnaws. That's all he can do. He would never think of nailing people by the ears, even if he was able to do it. Um, so I think there, there is a growing recognition that things are not going the way they're supposed to be going. The, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, all the promises coming from the left were that things were going to get better. Science and technology was going to fix things. We were all going to be in love. There was going to be no war. There was going to be no problems. World was going to be heaven on earth. That's where we were headed. And of course, this crashed into World War I, World War II, the 20th century generally. And today, there's just this recognition that we're not getting along. There are problems out there. And just, you know, full disclosure, I, I think the problems are us. I don't know if you have tried really hard to be good all the time. I have tried really hard to be good all the time, and I cannot do it, right? I, just decide, if you think you can do it, just take the Sermon on the Mount and try and live that out for a week. Or just take one aspect of the Sermon on the Mount, the golden rule. Just decide for the next... 12 hours, you're going to treat other people the way you want to be treated. Try that, just that, and see how you go, yeah, I got some issues here, right? Like, why would I think that? Why would I go that direction? Why would I get mad? Why would I be impatient? Why would, why would, I, why would I not be generally happy for other people the way I think I ought to be? So that is because of sin, Right? We're, we're broken at a, at a deep fundamental level. It's not a surface wound. It's, it's, it's a deep wound. So we have been exploring that. What does the Bible have to say to this conversation? And we started by noting out of Jeremiah 17 that uh, Jeremiah says, right out of the gates, we're in trouble if we put our roots down. Okay, that was the metaphor that he used. If, if our starting assumptions, if our deepest uh, beliefs, if our core convictions are not grounded in the belief that there is a God, a holy creator God, and that we are accountable to him. If we, if we don't start there, if that is not the big overarching understanding we have of everything, then we're turning left right out of the gates and we're in trouble. And then we looked at, uh, at Saul's life, Saul being a great, wonderful example of how we respond. Uh, we saw that Saul, when he did not do the right thing, right, he, he went down a very predictable pattern. First of all, he denied the facts on the ground. And I said, our mind is wired in such a way that if we're not as good as we think we are, or we, we perform worse than we expected to, we can actually unconsciously edit reality, what we allow ourselves to understand, right? We deny the facts on the ground about who we are and what we did. And so we saw that with, with, uh, with Saul. First he denied reality, then he blamed other people for the bad that was happening, and then he justified and rationalized his behavior. We are brilliant at justifying and rationalizing our behavior, right? We act in rational ways because it sure makes sense to us that I acted the way I acted given all the facts on the ground. The problem is we don't actually have the facts on the ground and we don't understand ourselves and usually somebody else has to peel that back for us before we're able to say, really, 
That's how that was perceived, right? Oh my goodness, I had no idea that, 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 that that's me. Sometimes we're the last to know how it is that we're responding. So we looked at Saul, and then we looked at Jonah. And Jonah's issue is that uh, he was a religious jerk, right? Jonah, because of his belief in God, thought he was special. He was a prophet of God. He was a member of the people of God. He was a Jewish prophet. But, but everything about Jonah's life suggested that he was worse than the Assyrians who he hated. The Assyrians repent. The Assyrians have a soft heart to God. The Assyrians go in the right direction. He doesn't, but he continues to insist that he's right and that he's better than they are. And God says, what's wrong with your heart? What's wrong with you? That you care more about a plant than you do about this whole city with 120,000 uh, 120, children in it. You want me to wipe it out? You, what, who are you? Right, so we see that Jonah's faith actually made him a jerk. And then last week we looked at Samson out of Judges, and we saw that Samson was, uh, was an addict. He was sort of addicted to adventurous recreational sex. And I said, look, uh, the fact is that uh, if, if we have something in first place in our life, whatever it is, and it can be, it can be a good, it, it's almost always a good thing, right? It can be food, it can be relationships, it can be sex, it can be, it, it can be all kinds of good things. But good goods make bad gods. And so because they're, they're, they're not God, because when we elevate them, they, they are in a sense even broken, so, so what happens is we end up in this addictive cycle where in order to get the rush, in order to get the hit, in order to have that kind of high, we need more of the same. But it's giving out less. And so we're, we're, we're looking for more and more. It's giving less and less. And so we, we become addicts. And we saw that Samson uh, was an addict and that that was the reason that he was stuck. Now, there are a number of other stories that we could look at in the Bible to, to better understand sin. I said there's a dozen different words, more than a dozen words that get translated out of Hebrew and Greek into the English word sin. We could look in Genesis 4 at um, Cain killing Abel and, and see that um, sin can sort of present itself as this overwhelming force that turns us into savages. We could go to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel account, and see that uh, the people decided to build a tower for their own glory. And there's nothing wrong with building a tower. Some people see the Tower of Babel as a, as a, as a knock against technology of all types. I'm nervous. I, th- I think we think technology is always neutral. I don't think it is. But, but technology is obviously, we're, our lives are so much better because of technology. So I, I don't go down that path. But I do think we, we miss if we don't see that there needs to be what I, what I experienced as a second conversion in which I, I, I came to faith believing God was for me, like that God was offering me unconditional love and forgiveness and eternal life, right? And, and I came to faith with this understanding that God was there for me. And at some point, while that's true, we got to go to we got to go to to point two, which is actually God doesn't exist for me; I exist for God. <laughs> right? 
God is God in this story, not me. God's life doesn't revolve around me. My life revolves around him. I was created for his glory. And that starts to change everything in terms of how we understand how things are going to unfold. And if I set out to build something for my glory, that would be a problem. Right? And so we see that, that sin can, can take what can be good things and corrupt them on us. And then uh, we can move on to Numbers 11. That's a fascinating passage. And in Numbers 11, uh, it's, it's a dark passage. There's no heroes. This is when the, the Jews are out in the desert. Uh, they have been, they have been uh, freed from their... Um, freed from their captivity to the Egyptians as slaves, and God has orchestrated this and uh, used Moses to that end. And then they're supposed to go back to the promised land, right? That was the deal. You get out out of slavery, you go back home to the promised land, the land that God had given to Abraham, go back to the promised land. But they don't believe that the God who just got them out of Egypt can get them into the promised land, so they said, well, we're going to go into the desert instead. Bad plan. I've been in that desert I mean, after like two hours in that desert, you think, I will die very soon if I don't get out of this heat. And there's nothing here, right? God is, it's a huge miracle that God keeps the Jews alive in that desert for 40 years. He supernaturally is providing water and food for them. But in Numbers 11, they complain about the food, right? And Moses says, seriously, I'm done. Right? He says, God, I'm done. I'm sick of these people. I would rather die than continue to try and lead these people. And God provides food. He provides uh, quail. And, and, but, but you see, then the people, they eat so much quail that some of them die from overeating. And, and it's just like they're, just, they're slaves to stupidity. Right? I mean, sin has made them slaves. They were slaves to the Egyptians. Now they're slaves to sin. And it has this, this it's just, it turns them into ugly foolish people. And then uh, we could go on from there. We could look at 2 Kings 5, uh, which is the story of Naaman. So in Greek tragedies, the hero always has some uh, Achilles heel, right? They're great in all kinds of ways, but there's one way in which they somehow fall down. And Naaman is this brilliant military leader. He comes up from poverty, becomes second to the king. He's a brilliant leader, but he has leprosy. And uh, so he, they, they seek all the cures that they can find. He's a Syrian general. They seek all the cures they can find in Syria. And then uh, uh, his, one of his domestic servants, this young girl, says to him, there is someone who can cure you. Right? It's the God of Israel um, and you should go to uh, Elisha, the prophet, and, uh, and he will tell you how. And so um, Naaman goes, and, and you read about this, and, and uh, Naaman, uh, Naaman will go to the king of Israel, and the king sends him to Elisha. Elisha won't meet with him, and then when, but Elisha gives him instructions on how to be cured, and he, he won't follow them, and another servant has to come along. When you read the story of Naaman, First, you're reading a story, and then you go, wait a minute, I think sin is like leprosy. I think that's what's going on here, right? The leprosy, this incurable, fatal disease, is like sin. And then the more you read, you go, oh, but it's not just that. The problem, the sin of Naaman, is his pride. 
And, and it's interesting to look at how God's cure for him is to consistently humiliate him. <laughs> he keeps trying to go to kings, and it keeps being these, these little 12-year-old servant girls that are actually giving him the counsel that he needs to get better. And he has to humble himself over and over uh, to move forward. So we could look uh, in 2 Kings 5. We could, we could jump into the New Testament. There's... Uh, Jesus' comments in Luke 12 where he says, beware of the sin of the Pharisees. And he talks then about yeast, right? The leaven of the Pharisees. So yeast is a, you know, it's, a, it's yeast. It's a bug and it eats, it eats sugar and it, it, it creates alcohol that evaporates right away and carbon uh, dioxide, which is a gas and it bubbles up and it makes bread dough rise, right? And so Jesus says, beware of the sin of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the yeast. So sin is like yeast. Well, so one of the things that you know about, about yeast is that it goes everywhere. So if you've gone into a bakery, not, not like today where, you know, things come in on a truck and they just, they, they bake it fresh that day, but they didn't make it there. But if you actually go into a bakery, you see that there's a lot of uh, protocol around yeast. Because if any if any flour, if any dough gets exposed to yeast, then, then it's infected. And it will infect everything else, and it will grow and it will spread. And so you have to know where this stuff is because it gets out of control. And you also know that if you leave the yeast in too long, it eats all the sugar, and it, and it makes things sort of unedible. So when I was little, my mom says, you know, look at this. I got this, I got these bugs. These are bugs and they're going to eat our, they're going to eat our food and they're going to change this dough and it's going to make it into bread and they're going to multiply. And I, you know, I'm, I'm like 10. I'm like, this is incredible. We're going to eat this stuff. Bugs. You keep them in the, really, you keep them in the, in the kitchen. I can't believe this. I want to see this. So then the bread rises and I go, well, let's see how big it'll get. Right? Let's just keep it going. Let's get it as big as we can. Well, what happens when that happens is that the, the yeast eats all the sugar. And so what you get in the end is, uh, is bad. Right? It, it, it tastes horrible. And so um, you've got to be aware of yeast taking all the sugar. And then uh, the, the third thing that we've we got to understand about yeast is that it is invisible. Right? And there's a sense in which sin is invisible. So we could go down this path and, and say there's a, lot of different, uh, there's a lot of different issues in the Bible. There's a lot of different aspects of sin. And, and these all help us understand what we're up against. I think we could profitably go on for some time with an understanding and a study of sin to understand what we're up against. I want, uh, I want to leave you with just a couple takeaway thoughts. One of the things that we need to get by this study is what we're up against. It, it's not a surface wound that we have. We can't fix ourselves, right? I, I don't want you to come away from a study on sin thinking, I just have to go out there and try harder. I'm not against you trying harder to be good. I'm not against accountability. I'm not against discipline. I'm not against, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to do better with prayer and Bible study. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, 
right? So we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not our effort. So salvation is, is a gift. We have to understand once we come across that line, once we become a Christ follower, we are expected to work towards getting better. But we cannot pull this off on our own. We cannot make this happen in and of ourselves. This is not a call to greater moral effort as much as it's partly a call to surrender to God and to embrace the gifts and the Spirit of God and and to yield ourselves in that direction. So the first thing I want you to understand is what you're up against is something we can't fix on our own. It doesn't mean we don't continue to pursue godliness. We're expected to work out our salvation. But we can't do this alone. We need more of Christ. And that leads to the second point is understanding how good Jesus is. So if, if, if you go to my house this afternoon before I get home from church, you go to my house and then you call me up and you go, Mike, I got to your house. There was a bill there. I paid it. Okay. Well, okay, thanks. Uh, I, I sort of need to know what bill you paid. So I know how thankful I should be. Was it like postage due, 13 cents, and you put a quarter in an envelope? Okay, thanks. Uh, was it, were they about to repo my car, right? A couple thousand dollars to keep them from taking it? Okay, thanks. Was it, uh, you know, the FBI because I'm, I owe back taxes for 10 years and I'm going to prison and I got a $300,000 fine? Okay. Wow. I mean, there's, there's a difference between 13 cents and keeping me out of prison, right? And, and so, so I sort of need to know what my debt was before I know how thankful to be <laughs> to you for paying my debt. So we have to understand When we're talking about sin, we're talking about a debt we can't pay. And we're talking about eternity. Christ is the way to eternal life. We're talking about eternal life with God in a world that works, a world that's not broken, a world where there's not cancer, a world where there's not injustice. We're talking about a world that works. We get invited to a world that works, eternal life with God through Christ. Because that debt is paid. So this is a huge thing. Right? We, our thanks to Christ should know no limits. And so uh, I want to say to you, uh, this fall we're going we're gonna to pursue how exactly we pursue Christ, what exactly we do to grow. The first four weeks, as we've already talked about, is a, is a sermon series uh, called uh, Discover Life with God. We're headed down that. That's, a, that's an outreach series. Then we're going into eight weeks where we're going to look at the things that we do in order to move forward with God. So uh, we're going we're gonna to pursue this. High level, I want you to just have this as a takeaway. Right? The way forward for you is more Jesus. The only way that sin, which is a little fire, loses its sway is if there is a bigger fire. Right? We're not trying to put the fire out. We can't put the fire out, but there's a bigger fire that dwarfs the little fire. And that comes from cultivating a growing, dynamic relationship with Christ. It comes through worship. It comes from knowing him. The more we see God, right, the less of a problem sin becomes. So the good news here 
is there is a solution for what ails us. If we're willing to admit that our problem is sin, Jesus takes care of sin. If your problem is moral confusion, if your problem is is that your parents messed up your life, if your problem is something else, I got nothing for you on that. But if your problem is sin and you will own it as sin and you will repent of sin and move towards Jesus, there's a solution for what ails us. And that solution is Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord God, um, we want more of you. Uh, We want more clarity about reality and the situation that we're in and what we're up against and ways forward. I pray that uh, we can move away from being stuck. We can see that some of the things that hold us back are are not going to hold us back any more than shouldn't hold us back any more than the people on that escalator were stuck on an escalator. There is a way forward, and it it comes through you and more of you, so we pray to that end. Help us see ourselves. Help us grow. We want to be unstuck and to become more and more like Christ. Pray this in his name.